Now, some of you know that I, I have a um, slight affection for baseball and one team in particular. And I've got to say, we, we've got to start with baseball. The Dodgers won their first playoff game. Okay? So that means, you, we, we can figure this out, that means they are obviously going to win every game because they won one. They're obviously the best team in baseball and they're going to win the World Series, right? So why even play the games? We can just give them the trophy now. <laughs> Don't even bring up the Giants. <laughs> What's wrong with that logic? It's flawed. <laughs> it's the Dodgers. Now, come on. These, no, no, no. By this logic also, the, the Red Sox, well, um, no. <laughs> no, what's wrong? What's wrong with giving them the trophy now? They haven't earned it. We haven't played the games yet. Does one game mean the Dodgers are the best team in all of baseball? <laughs> to my, my friendly Cubs fan. <laughs> no, because, because it's, it's just one game. We have to play the games. We have to see the end of the story before we know who's the better team, right? It could very well, <laughs> it could very well be that the Red Sox, who have lost two games and haven't quite won one yet, what if they come back and win the whole World Series? Then they're the best team. You have to play the games. You have to see the end of the story. The problem is, in a bigger picture, moving away from baseball, I mean, that's sort of fun, but in, in life, we are a people of the present, I would argue. We take our present circumstances and we take our present feelings and our present views of things and what's happening now, and we think that's what's happening. And we struggle to get outside of our own head and get outside of ourselves and see a bigger picture. I shared a story with our community group this week. And if you're not part of a community group, it's a great way to get in smaller groups and study God's Word and and invest in each other's lives. But I was sharing a story with one of the community groups this week of a pastor that um, was fostering children. And they were trying to adopt a couple of children through fostering. And in, in one given week, they had a court decision that gave them parental rights to one of the kids they were fostering, and they were so excited. And in that same week, a separate court decision took one of their other foster kids they were hoping to adopt and took them out of their home and into a situation that they felt wasn't great. And this pastor said, I had such mixed emotions. I was angry at God, but yet happy for one child. And and I couldn't understand what God was doing. Because in the present, in the moment, we can't see what God is doing, right? We know this. And he goes on to tell his story. And he says the child was was taken and reunited with her mother. No father in the picture. Reunited in mother. Mother's not a believer. The child, though, because they had handled it with the appropriate... um, integrity, the appropriate honesty, and the appropriate feelings, the mom still had them babysit this daughter. And they, they babysat this daughter, and, and then the mom said, you could take her to church. Started taking her to church and VBS and whatever other kids' programs there were. And they did that for several years, and then the mom moved away out of state. And they're like, okay, God, we, we had a ministry, but, but we love this child turns out that the family went to another state and there were some other siblings involved too family went to another state and 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 when they got there this little girl had gone to church so much and loved it so much that she begged her mom every week take me to church take me to church and eventually 
Mom gave in, took her to church, took the whole family to church. Just in a short time, the whole family accepted Christ. A healed family. A family that we will see in eternity. And the pastor said, you know, my little plan, my my little way of viewing things was this child needs to be with us so she will be saved and hear about Jesus. I had no idea that God's plan was to save a whole family. And who knows how many beyond that. See, he couldn't tell the story from where he was at. The story had to move to completion to find out what God was doing. As we've studied Isaiah, we're talking a lot about trusting in God. And and I don't know about you, but God's been working on my heart in this and giving me lots of occasions to trust God. And so I'm looking forward to not teaching on trusting God soon. But um, (laughs) we're not going to move to patience. Um, (laughs) But God does that and and so many things. But but Isaiah has been systematically, and you've got to read Isaiah in the bigger context and, and realize it is intentionally put together the way it's put together. And in the bigger context, Isaiah is dealing with these kings of Judah that are struggling with whether God is trustworthy. Because Assyria and, and the, the bad guys are all around and encamped and trying to take over their cities. And in the last two weeks, as we did a whirlwind through like 15 chapters, um, we saw country after country. And what, what God was doing is, see Babylon? You think they're so great and powerful? They die. Don't trust them. See Tyre and Sidon? You think they're so wealthy? You know, I want a life like that. They die. Don't trust them. You see these people? They die. Don't trust them. And, and so systematically, Isaiah is going through the nations, the things that they're tempted to trust in the world around them, and saying those don't last. But now today, we move to a different section of the book, but yet the same theme. And what Isaiah is doing, that's the present. And he said, I've dealt with the present. Now, logically, he's going to go to the end and say, if we're having to choose between two sides, wouldn't it be nice to know where they end up before we choose? And so he's going to take us, we're going to go through two chapters today, two chapters next week. He's going to take us to the end of the story. And say, okay, what happens with who you trust? What's the end of the story? And, and Augustine sort of got his city of God, some of it out of this section. And Augustine postulates that in the end, all of us fall into two camps. Either we're people of the city of man or we're people of the city of God. And the city of man represents man's society, his ways, how we do things. Under the kingdom of Satan... The city of God represents coming into God's kingdom and accepting Him as our Savior and knowing Him. And so Augustine says these are the two cities and we're always building into one of these two cities. In fact, he says two cities have been formed by two loves. The earthly by the love of self, even to the contempt of God. The heavenly by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. The former in a word glories in itself. The latter in the Lord. For the one seeks glory from men, but the greater glory of the other is God, the witness of conscience. The one lifts up its head in its own glory. The other says to its God, you are my glory, the lifter of my head. And so we have two cities, two realms. But where do they end? And that's where we're going to come to Isaiah. And if you remember the yarn, and and I know I brought it back out last week, the yarn of time. And over here we had creation. And, and we were trying to see things in the scope. And I keep coming back to this because this is what Isaiah is challenging us. We had creation here, and, and God created things, and He created it perfectly, right? And then just a little bit into it, we have the fall. 
where man chooses self, the city of self, the city of man over God. And I actually want to start there, even though today is all about there, because they tie together. In Genesis 3, verse 16, this is after creation, after God said it was very good, and then sin entered into the world by man's choice. We read in the curse. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten the tree of which, of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And at that moment... At that moment, sin entered into the world and the curse entered into the world. And ever since then, we've been struggling with the effects of the curse, right? Sometimes I refer, I I have stolen this from Albert Muller, but refer to this as a Genesis 3 world. So we have the curse in Genesis 3. Now as we move forward in time, and picture the yarn up here, as we move forward in time, we're dealing with the effects of the curse. Every sin is a result of the fall. Every natural disaster, like hurricanes, is a result of the fall. This isn't how God created it to be. He created it very good. And we come to Isaiah somewhere about here. And Isaiah is taking this little blip of time and saying, trust God. Because this realm, the city of man, it it leads to destruction. Don't go there. Don't trust anything but God. And they weren't getting it. And we know moving forward we have the cross where God redeems his city makes it possible to go against the curse, to go against the results, the wages of sin, and experience life with Christ. Now today we're going to come all the way to the end. Where do these two kingdoms end, these two cities, the city of man and the city of God? Because that helps us tell which one's true. That helps us decide which one am I going to not only come on Sundays and say I'm part of, which one am I going to give my life to? Because sometimes we can come on Sunday all we want and we can say we're a Christian all we want. But if we're not giving our lives to God, we're still firmly living in the city of man. And we're not even touching the city of God. And He invites us to come to live a life that follows God. To be dedicated to serving Him. Dedicated to loving Him because He loves us as Joshua shared. So turn with me to Isaiah chapter 24. And let's look at the two ends. 24 is going to basically deal with the fate of the city of man. And 25 is going to basically deal with the future of the city of God, those that follow God. And I know many of you here are believers. And you're like, okay, I know this stuff. Enjoy it. Let this build your trust in God. Because what Isaiah is doing is proving that God is trustworthy by the end. Proving the results are are part of how we know who God is. If you don't know God today, listen carefully. Listen carefully. Because you're on a path, and we're going to talk about where that path leads. And I pray that that's not a path you stay on. Isaiah chapter 24. And we come to the first chapter, and in your notes, it's the fate of the city of man, the destruction of the earth. You know, not, not to put it lightly, but... The destruction of the earth. And you can think of all kinds of movies that the earth is destroyed. But let's read what God says will happen. 
in verse 20, in chapter 24, verse 1. Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate, and He will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. Just, you know, jumping right in. A couple things. If you're highlighting with us, I have, I don't, I won't have all the verses this morning, but I have a few verses. I put this whole section in red down the left side because this is judgment. Remember, red was judgment, green was salvation and hope. But I highlighted a couple things in blue there. The Lord will. Because remember, that represented the sovereignty of God that He is executing His plan. So if you have your highlighters, it's a great way to just see what's going on here. It's judgment, but because God sovereignly is in control. Verse 2, And it shall be, as with the people, so with the priest. As with the slave, so with his master. As with the maid, so with her mistress. As with the buyer, so with the seller. As with the lender, so with the borrower. As with the creditor, so with the debtor. The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken this word. The earth mourns and withers. The world languishes and withers. The highest people of the earth languish. And what Isaiah is beginning to describe is the end of time when God brings human history to a close and the earth is judged. And what you see there is an utter destruction. A complete destruction that nobody can avoid. In verse 2, when he says, as with the people, so with the priest, the slave, so with the master. What he's doing is giving examples to say everyone. Okay, this, this affects everyone. If you're part of the city of man, if you haven't followed God, this is the future. In this chapter, 16 times he uses the word earth representing that he's now moved from the local nations to what's going to happen to this whole earth at the end of time. It doesn't matter who you are religiously, domestically, economically. If you don't follow Christ, this is your future. He sort of puts it out there, doesn't he? The earth shall be utterly empty, utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken this word. It is God's judgment and His right judgment as we'll see in a moment. The mourning and the withering inside, a lot of people think that that also represents its withering from inside. So 1 through 3 is an outside judgment. 4 may very well represent an inside judgment because sin affects us. It makes us wither on the inside. It, it, it captures us and holds us captive and shrivels us up. It says, everyone of this kingdom of man will be judged. Then in verse 5, he goes to the why. And I just have some points that outline this chapter for us. The why. God will rightly judge man's choice of sin and rebellion. So we can look at that and say, okay, why did God do this? Did, did he just need to show his power? Was it just a whim? Was he just toying with us and saying, oh, let's wipe some out. Boom. No, he, he doesn't have a giant chessboard or wrist set and, and, and trying to have fun wiping people out. He is a righteous just God. And Isaiah wants us to remember that in verse 5. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. And he uses three short phrases that, that multiply each other to say, this is because man has made a choice to rebel against God. Don't call me arbitrary, God is saying. This is what you chose. And he uses words, transgress laws, that you've disobeyed, you've chosen to go against what I've said. The commands I've given you for your good to live life to the full. 
You violated the statutes. The word violated there has the idea of replacing something. So you've replaced my statutes with your own ideas of right and wrong. With good and evil. And they've been switched. And then finally, you've broken the everlasting covenant. And a covenant... This represents discarding a relationship with God. And and we have examples of different covenants and a lot of scholars have tried to figure out which covenant this was referring to and none of them agree. They, They all agree that this points to a larger covenant of God's relationship with His people. See, when we're saved, it's because God has loved us and drawn us to Himself. He has given His Son on the cross So we can be saved and He enters a a father-child relationship with us. It is awesome. It is beautiful. And He covenants with us to give us eternal life. And we covenant to live for Him. And so at the end, God will judge the earth because they've broken that covenant. They've turned their back. Verse 6 continues, and and this is why I read the story of the curse at the beginning. Therefore a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are scorched, and few men are left. Don't come away from this verse thinking, man, God is just an an awful, evil God. This is not as hard as we're going to see in the next chapter, as we see in the whole story trying to give us, give us salvation, convince us to follow Him. But what we see here in verse 6, it's a result of the curse, result of the fall. We suffer because we are guilty. And He will judge. And when we talked about the attributes of God, we talked about God's righteousness. And one of the things about God's righteousness is he must judge sin. Follow this with me. If God doesn't judge sin and allows it to flourish, then he is not a righteous God. And he is not a just God. And we don't want to go down that path. Because that affects everything. A righteous, just God must judge sin. And so in that point I put, God will rightly judge man's choice of sin and rebellion. In Deuteronomy 11, one of the the covenants with his people, verse 26, he says, See, I am setting before you a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I commanded you today. And the curse, if you do not, not obey the commandments of Yahweh your God. But turn aside from the way that I am commanding you today to go after other gods that you have not known. And he sets it out there. He says, follow me, follow my way. If you choose not to, the results are punishment. You know, it, it's like moms and dads when you're disciplining your kids. It's harder to discipline if you've never set out what's right and wrong, right? If you've never told them what not to do and, and they do something and then you punish them for it, it is so confusing for a child because like you never told me. We don't have that excuse. God has said, this is how to live. Follow me. And when we choose not to, how dare we get mad at him for, for what he's doing what he said he would do? This is why in Romans 6.23 it says the wages of sin is death. And that word wages mean the rightfully earned result of sin is death. And so the, the, the question when we look at God is not why does he punish sin, but why doesn't he punish sin? 
Praise God He is a loving God as well. And praise God He is a God of grace because He has given us a way to salvation. Here He's talking about the end of time. The earth will be destroyed. Scorched. It's part of God's judgment. But it's because we've rebelled against the Creator. He goes on, verses 7-12, through 12, begin to poetically describe what this looks like a little bit more. I put, life is devastated in the wasted city of man, the world. And, and, and we re, I'll just read 7-12 through 12, because I want you to get the feel of it. The wine mourns, the vine languishes, all the merry-hearted sigh. The mirth of the tambourines is stilled. The noise of the jubilant has ceased. The mirth of the lyre is stilled. No more do they drink wine with singing. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. The wasted city is broken down. Every house is shut up so that none can enter. There's an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. All joy has grown dark. The gladness of the earth is banished. Desolation is left in the city. The gates are battered into ruin. Do you get the feel of the end of the way of man? If you're highlighting, I'd put red down that whole side. That's all judgment. That's not a lot of hope there. But he's comparing two ends. And so he's saying there's no more joy. There's no more glad noise. The only thing that's left is outcries and and empty houses, battered gates, so no security. It's interesting in verse 10, the wasted city is broken down. He uses the same word that we see in Genesis 1-2. The earth was formless and void. Empty. And Isaiah is tying it back to the curse and tying it back to, to the violation of God's creation. See, the big picture here is God created something that was very good. Man sinned. Should be destroyed. God gives a way to salvation eventually He will destroy evil and He will reward those that follow Him. He will recreate what He started with. It's a beautiful story. I want to move on. Verse 13. In this this section, this section you can go green. The believing remnant sing a song of joy at God's right punishment of sin. The believing remnant sing a song of joy at God's right punishment of sin. Verse 13, and we we have to understand 13 a little bit. For thus it shall be in the midst of the earth among the nations, as when an olive tree is beaten, as at the gleanings when the grape harvest is done. Now, most of you don't harvest olives. Some of you might have grape plants. But, But what's happening here is he's referring to the idea of the harvest that they would leave some things. And so at the top of the olive tree, the very top, they would leave some olives. And so there was just a little bit left that the poor could come and get long sticks and beat them down and get some things. Same with the grapes. They would leave some for gleaning. So symbolically, what Isaiah is saying here, even in the middle of this destruction, God will destroy the city of man. There will be some that follow God. And they will be saved. And so this refers to that remnant. For thus it shall be in the midst of the earth among the nations as when an olive tree is beaten, as at the gleaning when the grape harvest is done. And what does that remnant say? Because this gives us hope. They say they lift up their voices. They sing for joy over the majesty of the Lord. And that would be a great spot for yellow, the attributes, the glory of God. 
They lift up their voices. They sing for joy over the majesty of the Lord. They shout from the west. Therefore in the east give glory to the Lord. In the coastlands of the sea give glory to the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. From the ends of the earth we hear songs of praise. O glory to the righteous one. And then we have an afterthought from Isaiah. But I say I waste away. I waste away. Woe is me. For the traitors have betrayed. With betrayal, the traitors have betrayed. And what's happening here is Isaiah is giving us a scene from the end. And he's saying there will be a destruction of the city of man. God will wipe out and He will judge evil. And probably he's referring to the tribulation here. So many of the things today are going to map into Revelation. Probably looking at the the sequence, the tribulation here, and there's a remnant that are going to come out of the tribulation that don't get the mark of the beast, that follow God. And they will rejoice because evil is finally destroyed. We see that in Revelation when you have the, the... the souls of the martyred before the throne saying, How long, O God? How long before justice? How long before your righteousness and justice deal with sin? And we understand this, right? When we see a situation that's unfair, when we see somebody that is oppressing someone else or using someone else or abusing someone else, and they finally get theirs, isn't there a little bit of joy? little bit. We fought this a few years back when bin Laden was killed. And, and we know that God doesn't take pleasure even in the death of the evil, and, and, and He's not taking pleasure here. But it was hard not to feel a sense of rightness that this evil was destroyed and taken care of. And we see that here. They're, they're rejoicing that finally they're out from under the scourge, scourge of evil. You have words in, in the yellow there, majesty of the Lord, glory the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, the righteous one. These are all the attributes of God that, that say He will judge. He is powerful, He is above all, and He will deal rightly with sin and with those that follow Him. At the end of 16, I really think this is Isaiah just with a personal note saying, I know this is going to happen in the future, but I'm struggling now. Assyria is coming. It just seems like evil is winning now. You ever feel that way in our world? Does it feel sometimes like evil is winning now? Turn on the news. And we could take today, and we could take the news this week, just even this week, and we could come to a conclusion that God is not on the throne, He is not in control, and evil is winning. And that's saying the Dodgers are the best team in baseball because we only saw the first game. See how it's tying in? I didn't just throw in the Dodgers for fun. (laughs) We've got to know the end of the story. And Isaiah says, it's hard now. And life is hard sometimes. Sometimes we have circumstances we don't understand. And we feel the weight of this world on our souls. I love Isaiah's honesty. Because he's, he's saying, God, I feel this even though I know you are God and you win. And you will deal with this rightly. So the believing remnant sing a song of joy at God's right punishment of sin. And then we move on to the rest of the chapter and the rest of the chapter is read again. He gets back to the judgment because this whole chapter 
is what, what the fate of the city of man is, what the fate of not following God is. So we see God's continued judgment on, on the earth is unavoidable and final. And again, just feel the weight of the poetry here. Terror and the pit and the snare are upon you, O inhabitant of the earth. He who flees at the sound of terror, yes, I'm safe, shall fall into the pit. And he who climbs out of the pit, yes, I'm safe, shall be caught in the snare. For the windows of heaven are opened and the foundation of the earth tremble. And they they would have saw this as as an allusion to the flood. Not that God's going to destroy the earth with the flood again, but they would have thought, oh, God's done this before. The earth is utterly broken. The earth is split apart. The earth is violently shaken. The earth staggers like a drunken man. It sways like a hut. He comes back to the why. Its transgression lies heavy upon it, and it falls and will not rise again. Wow. This is better than any end-of-the-world movie you've seen. In verse 19, he uses three phrases again that escalate, that, that compound each other. And they all use derivations of the same Hebrew word to shake or rip apart. The earth is utterly broken. The earth is split apart. The earth is violently shaken. None can avoid it. It's a reminder to us that if I choose not to follow God, if I choose to live for this world, to enjoy this world and say, this is my city, I cannot avoid God's judgment. Nothing in this world will save me from the justice of God. And that should cause us to tremble. And that should instill the fear of God in us. But that's not the end of the story. And we're going to see in the next chapter. We're going to see in the New Testament. Last few verses. God will reign and all will be subject to the true king. On that day, the Lord will punish the host of heaven. In heaven and the kings of the earth and on the earth, they will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in a prison. And after many days, they will be punished. Then the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed. For the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. And his glory will be before the elders. We see the, the, the finality of the judgment, but we see God's sovereignty and we see His glory. A couple of things here. Verse, verse 21, On that day the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on earth. It's a reminder of, of the universal aspect of God's rightness and His justice and His discipline and His punishment. It's not just on earth. It's the host of heaven that has rebelled against Him. They will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in a prison. And after many days, they will be punished. Any Revelation fans here? People have studied Revelation. What does that sound like? Satan and his demons are bound for a thousand years. They are thrown into the pit. And God has the key. And after a thousand years of the millennium in Revelation, in Revelation 19 and 20, they are released and God judges them. Quickest battle in history. They all rise up against God, boom, they're dead. That's what he's referring to here. The Bible is one beautiful book that God, the Holy Spirit, through the Holy Spirit, has written, and it comes together. He's reminding us at the end, even Satan and his demons will be judged. Don't trust them. 
Verse 23 also can be confusing to us. Then the moon was confounded and the sun ashamed, for the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and His glory will be before the elders. It's referring, I think, to Revelation 21. In Revelation 21, the new heaven and the new earth come and and we are dwelling with God and with Christ. And it says His glory will be our light and we won't have need for the sun and the moon. And these words here are the sun and the moon are, are almost belittled or tiny compared to the glory of God. It's a beautiful picture. We're getting snapshots in Isaiah of what will happen. In Revelation, it explains it a little bit more, but this is living with God and in His glory. We won't even need the sun and the moon. So 24, that's the, that's the encouraging part of the sermon today. The earth will end. It will be utterly destroyed. All who live in, this, in, in the sphere of this kingdom and this world, if this is what you're living for, this is your future. The lesson, though, is that the earth is not all there is. This life is not all there is. Praise God. That's not where I want my future to be. So we get to chapter 25. Turn there and we get to the future of the city of God. And they're both intermingled a little bit. We saw some hope in 24. We're going to still see some judgment in 25. You, you really can't talk about one without the other. But the future of the city of God. Praise the God who without a doubt has an incredible future for His father, followers. Without a doubt, He is faithful. He will execute His plan. And for his followers, it means glory in the new heaven and new earth, the new creation where God recreates what we messed up and we live with him for all eternity. It'll be amazing. Let's look at this. Verse 21, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. I'm going to stop right there. Can't, can't go past that. Isaiah here is declaring praise. And, and I, I, in my notes, have orange at the first part of that, reminding me my response should be to exalt God. My response should be praise even now. And what he's doing is he's, he's making a statement, a line in the sand that says God's plans are sure. He is faithful. Faithful and sure. Plans formed of old. Nothing can get in the way of God's plan. And again, this is part of the argument of who to trust. Do you trust someone that can execute all their plans and nothing can stop them? Or do you trust something that's going to die and has no way to execute their plans? It's sort of silly, right? And so he's saying God's plans are faithful and sure. I love the sinner part there, and this is just for fun. For you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old. And the way that the Hebrew is constructed there is right in the middle is, is the verbs for wonderful counselor. You heard that before? Isaiah 9, 6. And it's a reference back to God's name, the Messiah's name, wonderful counselor. And the counselor had the idea of counseling for plans and they would happen. And he will do wonderful things. Guys, God is unimaginably faithful. If you come away with anything today, God is faithful to you. He will do what He says. He will never let you down. Even if in the moment you don't see how He's working, His plans cannot be thwarted. And I know I I, I talk with 
I talk with so many of you every week, and I know there's hurt, and I know there's pain, and I know there's situations that we don't see God at work. But that's just it. He is. We just don't see it. And we have to trust Him that He is doing something way beyond my little life. I'm just a little speck on that timeline. And His glory will win. He goes on and and in this first section reminds them that the sin has been dealt with. For you have made the city a heap that's dealing with the the city of man. Again, he uses the same word, this worthless city, formless and void. A fortified city in ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, and catch this, therefore strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. What? What? No, he's, he's saying that the, the evil empire will eventually fear God and glorify Him. And you've heard me talk about this because we see this in Philippians 2. Every knee will bow. And it's not saying that everyone will be saved, but that everyone will be used to the glory of God. We just get to, be, to choose how. For those of you that, that are saved, for those of us that have followed Christ, we bring glory to God because we are living testimonies to His grace and His love and His salvation that He sent His Son into this Genesis 3 world, this cursed world, to pay the wages for our sin. And as He hung on the cross, He bore the weight of every one of our sins. And He paid the price as He died there. And when we come to Him, and when we accept that free gift, He, he says, my righteousness is on you. Even though you're filthy, God's going to see my righteousness and it's a beautiful, beautiful thing of His grace. It's completely undeserved. Nothing we can do can earn that. That's one way we glorify God. But for those that don't follow God, God's glory and His righteousness and justice is put on display when He punishes that. See, everyone's going to glorify God some through the display of His just and right wrath, and some through the display of His loving grace. We get to choose which camp, which end we want. Oh, choose wisely. Four, for you have been a stronghold, and this goes back to what God has done. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in His distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat, For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall. God protects His own. Verse 5, Like heat in a dry place, you subdue the noise of foreigners. That might not make sense to us, but the next phrase helps us. As heat by the shade of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is put down. And the picture is, if, if you're out in the sun, and the sun's beating down on you, and you're hot, and you're like, oh, I just need relief, the sun's pretty powerful, right? So what does it take to give you relief? Little cloud. Little cloud comes by. Sun doesn't hurt you anymore. And and God's using that to say, really, the ruthless that are oppressing you, they're pretty puny. I can take care of it like that. Isn't that comforting? No matter what we're in, God is our stronghold. He's a shelter. He's a refuge. He's shade from the heat because He is faithful and has wonderful plans. The chapter goes on and we see just a lot of snapshots of Revelation again of the end of time. And so 
for the rest of the chapter, I just have some descriptions of, of what believer's eternity with God is like. And we like this, right? We like little snapshots of heaven. It encourages us to keep going. And that's a, a little bit of what this is doing. It's a description of the future of the city of God. In this passage, it's referred to the mountain of the Lord, which refers to Zion. In Revelation, we see the new Jerusalem coming down there. And again, when we say the city of God, it's his kingdom, his realm, those that follow him. In verse 6, we get the first one. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And the first description of heaven is there will be a feast of joy and celebration like no other. Guys, this isn't Taco Bell. And it's compared... (laughs) It's... Oh, man. It's compared to chapter 24 where the wine and the feasting and the joy, everything was taken away. And this is symbolic feasting. Eating was symbolic of relationship, of communion with God. And this is a reference to the, the wedding feast where the bride makes herself ready for Jesus and the wedding of the Lamb. And that's, it's all right there in Revelation. We see that Jesus talking about that too. But this isn't, this isn't some just podunk food. It's not fast food. It's even better than Ruth Chris Steakhouse. I know, Don, we're trying to get you to take us there still. With kids, it's so funny, right? We, we've taken them to some nice restaurants. And steak and, and just some really cool stuff. What do they order? Chicken nuggets. I know, no, there's steak. I want chicken nuggets. Maybe a hot dog. Really? Now that they're getting older, I'm like, don't you want the kids' menu? Do you know? Look at the cost. <laughs> Let's do this. One of mine has a birthday later this month that they're no longer a child at Hometown Buffet. So we're going to go the day before and celebrate. <laughs> they don't appreciate the finer foods yet, right? Now, now my oldest now, last time we were out at a nicer restaurant, he goes, I think I'll try the steak. I'm like, no. This is a wedding feast that we may not realize how incredible it is now, but we will enjoy it to the full. God the Lamb of God and Jesus Christ will be wed to His church and His followers. And it will be a celebration like we have never seen. We have some weddings coming up. Nothing compared to this. Sorry, guys. One of the other things to look at in verse 6, it's it's made for all peoples. Praise God, it's not just for the Jews, it's for the Gentiles. And we see that even in the Old Testament. God's plan all along was to provide salvation through Jesus Christ for every one of us. So there will be a feast of joy and celebration like no other. A celebration we're going to find out in the next section of the death of death. Verse 7, letter B, the new heaven and new earth will mean an end to death. An end to death. And He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all people. And that word is sometimes used of grave clothes. The covering that's cast over all people. We're all subject to death and and I guess death and taxes, they say. The veil that is spread over all nations. And and so we look at that. Yeah, we we all have to give in to death someday. But verse 8, He will swallow up death forever. 
It's gone. The Lord Yahweh will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. Remember the ultimate faithful one? If He says it, it's going to happen. And we see three different things in this verse. The first is an end of death. He's reversing the curse. The curse brought death into this world. The Genesis 3 world is why we have death. And at the end, with the new heavens and new earth, death is gone. In fact, in Revelation chapter 20, it says death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. This passage just matches Revelation 19 through 21. And there will be no more death as we spend eternity with Christ. Praise God. No more of the fear of death. No more hospice. No more suffering. No more decaying of our bodies. Oh, that sounds better and better as I get older. But verse 8 also says the end of pain and sorrow. No more tears. Because we're with God. The curse is gone. The last part of 8 says that and the reproach of the people He will take away from all the earth. And the the idea of reproach is the effects of sin. The curse of sin. Sometimes I just sit and think, what would this world be like without sin? What would it be like if there was no fall? I can't even comprehend that. Sin has stained and, and tortured every part of our world. And Satan is trying to say this is the kingdom and the only thing that works. But God, at the end of the story, says, no, my kingdom is the only thing that survives. Letter E, rejoicing with God will be part of eternity with God. Verses 9 and 10. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is Yahweh. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. For the hand of Yahweh will rest on this mountain. And and it's a picture that we will be with Him. We will dwell side by side with Him. We will see Him face to face, guys. You'll be worshiping God face to face. You think these songs are great now? Just wait till you're singing them directly to God. That's the future of the kingdom of God. His hand will be on this mountain. His hand of protection. His hand of of working through us and in us. And then the last one there, letter F. Eternity means an end to sin and pride. An end to sin and pride. And he uses Moab here, a country next door. Do you remember Moab from the first set of oracles? They were in trouble. They knew they were in trouble. They came to Israel and asked for help. And all they had to do was come under submission to the king Yahweh. All they had to do. And they said, no thanks. We'll do this on our own. They were wiped out for their pride. That's why he uses them here to represent the whole city of man. The whole way of trying to do things on our own without God. He says, and Moab shall be trampled down in his place as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. This is pretty gross. And and we've got to understand it. It's in the Bible. It's my excuse this morning. He's picturing a mound of animal dung and someone being pushed down inside of it, barely able to breathe, trying to get out on their own. It's disgusting 
and he's trying to show the end of following this world. The end of a life without God. It's like being trampled down in a dunghill. 11, and he will spread out his hands in the midst of it, trying to swim out of the dung as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim. But the Lord will lay his pompous pride together, will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands. He thinks he's so great. He's so proud. He doesn't need God. Boom, he's laid low. The high fortifications of his wall he will bring down, lay low and cast to the ground, to the dust. We have a description of eternity with God, and it sounds pretty awesome. There will be a feast of joy and celebration like no other, an end to death, the end of pain and sorrow. The curse and the effects of sin in us will be removed and reversed. We'll be rejoicing in the very presence of God. But there will be an end to sin and pride because those cannot stand in the presence of God. What do we learn about God? Last section, what I want to always think about as we read through Isaiah. The first one is the big picture shows us that God is ultimately trustworthy. He's showing us the end to say everything else you trust, dead, nothing, empty. His kingdom is the only one that lasts. Only his plans last. We also see that God is completely righteous and will completely deal with sin and rebellion. If we ever think we're getting away from it, uh, away with it, and my kids do sometimes. Sometimes I look around the corner and I'm watching them. Mom's dad, you ever do this? And I watch them disobey me and look around thinking they're getting away with it. And then they come to the stark realization they didn't. We do that with God. We want to live for today and for the enjoyment of this life and the pleasures of this life and say, huh. Ah, maybe I'll even turn back to God before I die and I'm good. I got away with it. The end of that is destruction. Third thing to remember about God through this, and this is a simple one that we come back to almost every week. God is all powerful. His plans will be completed because He's the only one that can complete them. He is all powerful. And finally, His plans are for His glory, which leads to our good. He has great things planned for those that follow Him. You may not see it today. This week might be a, day of, a week of trials where He's refining you and developing character and executing His plans in ways we don't understand. But ultimately, His glory will lead to the good of those that follow Him. I want to end with, with challenging you today. There are two cities. The city of man that says, I can do it myself. Pride, I'm not going to trust God. I don't need God. And the city of God, which says, I am completely dependent on on God. Every moment of every day, good times and bad times. And today we've seen where both lead. And so I challenge us today to make a choice of which kingdom we're going to be part of. Today, if you say you don't need God, I can't sugarcoat it. The end is destruction. The end is in the lake of fire with Satan and his demons. A righteous God can do no other. But if we choose to follow God, if we choose to take that gift of salvation as Jesus hung on that cross and said, let me take that that stain of sin from you. Let me take that punishment from you. 
And if we choose to give Him our hearts and our lives and follow Him wholeheartedly, the end is this incredible picture in Isaiah 25. Which do we want? Do we want the, 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 the pleasures of the present or the glories of eternity? And if you've never made that choice, today is the choice. People aren't telling you where this life leads if we just stay self-centered. But God does. My other challenge is for, for many of you that believe, use this as an opportunity to see the faithfulness of God. To in a week, in a day, in a month, in a year where you're tempted not to trust God, remember the end. He's working His plan. Nothing will change that. Be sold out to Him. Trust Him. You know, if today you've never made that decision and want to talk to someone, I'm just going to hang out here afterwards a little bit. Come talk to me. Talk to one of the elders, one of the pastors. It would be an incredible joy to welcome you into the kingdom of God today. There would be singing and dancing. Well, maybe not dancing from me, but from the angels. Talk to me. Let's deal with eternity. I leave you with something I've said before. If we can trust God with our our eternity, then we can trust Him with our tomorrow. Which one's harder? Trust God every day. Let's pray. Lord God, we give our lives to You. The King, the only one worthy to be King, the only one worthy to follow. And Lord, challenge us to follow you completely and to give our hearts sold out for you and watch you do incredible things as you unfold your plan. Help us to trust you, remove our worry, help us to give that to you and help us to be excited for how you're going to work out things to your ends, even when we don't see it. We trust you, we praise you as our faithful king. In Jesus' holy name.